So, Paulette, I want to read you an email from a patron. What do you say? Let's do it. And as always, just as a caveat, I, I always use my judgment regarding what to read from their emails uh, because I want to mask people's identity if, if there's sensitive material. So, so there's sensitive material in this email, and I'm going to mask their identity. Uh, she writes, Hi to the Psychology in Seattle folks. That's us. That's us. I discovered you about a month and a half ago, and I'm, become, and I'm becoming a fan. Ooh. I've come to respect Kirk's opinions, and although I don't share all of them, Ooh. it's always interesting to hear what he has to say. And I just became a patron. Yeah. So I'd like to know uh, what you think about this. I'm a 33-year-old female. Me too. Oh. I've, is this you? Did you write in? No. Okay. I've been in therapy for several years with both male and female therapists. About three or four months ago, I started therapy with a male therapist who I really liked. I was going through a recent breakup and some professional difficulties. He seemed to be very empathetic, compassionate, and insightful person and with a great sense of humor. I really felt like he walked with me through my fears. In several occasions, he mentioned that he really appreciated my deep emotional nature and he was honored to work with me. After going through so many therapists and not finding the right one, finding him felt like bliss. At the end of the first session, he told me I was a smart, personable, beautiful woman and that I had many things coming my way. The female therapist I saw prior to him made almost the same comment, so I thought that I was dealing with the same approach. Starting from the second session to the last session, he would always make the same two comments about me, that I, that I felt very deeply and that I was very sensual. When we, we continued to develop a closer and closer relationship that was moving very quickly, and I also cried a lot during these sessions. There were times when I would rest my elbows on my knees and my face on my hands during a breakdown of crying, and he would come sit next to me, and the next, sec- the next session, he would hold my hand, and the next session, he would rub my arm and my feet. Any comments on that, Paulette? And my feet? Yeah. Does that seem interesting to you? That seems interesting. Something felt wrong to me, but I was enjoying it and didn't want to do anything about it. I mean, who doesn't enjoy a good foot rub? (laughs) One day while I was crying again, he sat on the floor right next to me and rubbed the lower half of my legs. Then he came to sit next to me on the couch and asked me for a hug, and I honored his request. Soon he was lying on the couch and surrounding me with his arms. Any thoughts about that? Lying on the couch... And so, sir. oh, for, like, like no. spooning her or something. This seems so weird. Yeah. The next session, I went into the room feeling really sad about him, and I felt very uncomfortable. Yeah, no shit. He noticed this, and he asked what was going on, but I lied and just said that I only had a headache. He tilted forward in his chair and pressed my calf, which I'm trying to imagine why and how that looked. And a few minutes later, kissed me next to my knees. Kissed, what? Kissed me next to my knees. Kissed yeah. me next to my knees. Yeah. Kissed me next to my knees. <laughs> he then asked to come sit next to me and soon held me in a way similar to the prior session. So the... This is way too much physical contact. Basically cuddling. Cuddling. He said that if we met under different circumstances, he would chase me and he would beg me to have coffee with him. He said that he wanted me to know that he would always be there for me 
and that he wanted me to be empowered to ask him to back off or get closer at my will. Oh, my God. I asked him if he was tempted, and he said yes. And my bad, I know, when I asked him why he found me beautiful, he responded that the proportions of my breast, waist, hip (laughs) made him go, wow, and that the proportions of my face were flawless and that he really liked my mouth and my eyes. Uh, so a smooth operator we got here. <laughs> I so, find your waist to be 33% smaller than your hips, which I enjoy. What should she have done in this situation, Paulette? My God. Um, uh, well, we've discussed this. I think this is getting extremely unprofessional, and she should have left right then, probably. Ugh, I hate when a guy puts you in a bad situation like that, and especially in such a high-trust situation as a therapist. No, no. No bueno. Well, let's go on with her email. Oh, my. That was the last time I saw him. Good. I'd love to hear your opinion. He was great at the beginning, and that makes things very difficult for me. The few weeks after I ended therapy, I had to fight my love feelings for him every day. That's why I haven't filed a complaint to the licensing board. This whole situation feels so unfair. I went to him for help and paid privately, and today I'm out of a couple thousand dollars and I can't act freely. What do you think about that? Oh, it's so sad. I think it's so sad how many people in this country either feel or are, I want to say disenfranchised from their rights, but is that a right word, use of the word disenfranchised? Yeah, that's a loose, loose. Okay, loose. Loose usage. They're like, they have a lack of power over their own lives because they're they're just scared to get kicked out of this country for and I think that that gets um, exploited. It gets exploited a lot by people and that's really sad. I don't know. That sounds. What do you think she should do? Well, today in this episode, I'm going to give my advice to her. Ooh. I'm also going to provide a brief history of therapist client sexual relationships, along with the research the ethical codes, the legal consequences, the impact on the client, and what sort of therapists tend to have sex with their clients. Because this guy was clearly... this this yeah, this This client was clearly... Or this therapist was clearly going down that road, right? Yeah. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. I am writer and American layperson, Paulette Perhatch. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, mm-hmm. so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, which I guarantee it's going to be a good one, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Patrons get access to all premium episodes on their phones or on the Patreon page, and remember that 20% of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. Okay, welcome to the patron zone, people. Let's talk about the history of patient-therapist relations. How long has it been considered unethical for doctors to have sex with their patients? What do you think? Since the 60s? It actually goes back thousands of years. Wow, my God. The the Hippocratic Oath, have you heard of that? Do no harm. Yeah, but it's actually... (laughs) Unless that's what they're into. Um, It's actually, yeah, the Hippocratic Oath goes back a long time ago, and it's actually actually an involved uh, philosophy, so to Uh speak. And to quote, and this is a uh, 
uh, I'm looking in my book, Sexual Intimacy Between Therapists and Patients, mm. and published in 86 by Pope and Bauhausos. Uh, Pope, Kenneth Pope is actually a uh, preeminent, preeminent? Preeminent. Uh, writer in the area of countertransference and relationships and um, He's, he's a great uh, contributor to our field. But he is quoting from the Hippocratic Oath here, and he says, In every house where I come, I will, <laughs> I will enter only for the good of my patients, keeping myself far from all intentional ill-doing and all seduction, mm. and especially from the pleasures of love with women and men. Interesting. So it's very specific in that in the Hippocratic Oath, we do not have sex with our patients. How long is the Hippocratic Oath? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. Because I thought it was really just first do no harm. Like, yeah, do, do no, no harm. harm. Yeah. I thought that was the entire thing. Yeah. Maybe it's first do no harm, and then it eventually and then it's like... 100. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Now, whether or not this oath was followed is another question, right? All right. When was the first documented sexual relationship between client and therapist? What year do you think that was? Because you also have to think about how long there's been therapists yeah. in the West. 1800s. Uh, like 18... I don't know. 1834. Okay. Um, not bad. 1911-ish. Okay. Uh, you know, you're in that zone. If you would have said like 2006, that would have been a swing and a miss. But yeah. uh, you're, you're in the zone. You're in the old-timey zone. Old-timey times. <laughs> uh, it was Sandor Ferenzi. One of the founders of, of psychoanalysis, he was a student of Freud. Sexy Sarando. Yeah. And he had a sexual relationship with his uh, younger female patient, Gisela, whom he later married. And according to some sources, he also had a brief sexual relationship with Gisela's daughter. Actually, Gisela was the one who was his age, and um, he also seemingly had sex with his, his wife's daughter. Uh, daughter prior to him marrying Gisela. Anyway. Not great. Sandor Ferenzi, Ferenzi is actually a wonderful therapist. Uh, in some ways, his writings are much more relatable to today's therapist than Freud's himself. But he, but he had some issues, apparently. And also, back in the day, there wasn't really a clear ethical or legal guideline regarding this. It, it wasn't frowned upon very much. Freud particularly frowned on it, but other people didn't, and so things are different. For instance, Carl Jung, you know, see, uh, Carl Jung, he had a sexual affair with his patient Sabina Spielrein. This relationship was depicted in the movie A Dangerous Method by Cronenberg. Have you seen this movie? No. It's actually really with uh, Michael Fassbender and Keira Knightley. Fassbender plays Jung and has very rough sex with Keira Knightley. My God. Yeah. Um, some people claim that Jung never had sex with uh, Spielrein, but I've actually read the letters that Spielrein, Freud, and Jung wrote together to each other, and it's pretty clear that there was a romantic, a sexual relationship between them. They all admitted there was a romantic, intense relationship, but you know, sex wasn't explicitly discussed, but it seems pretty clear. Whether or not they had sex, as depicted in the Cronenberg film, is absolutely debatable because there's no details on the on the S&M details because <laughs> there's a lot of S&M in that movie. Wow. Anyway, yeah. Um, also, just so you know that it's not all just men having sex with their female patients. 
In the early 1900s, Frida Fromm Reichman stopped her work with a client so she could marry him. And the highly respected Karen Horney, or it's spelled horny. If oh, you, no. But, but it's uh, pronounced Horney. Middle school was rough for her. <laughs> she had a sexual relationship with a younger male client. You would think that she'd be like, well, my last name is essentially horny. I better not sleep with a client or it's only going to, the teasing is only going to get worse. The adult teasing. Or it's in the stars. Or go with it. Yeah. She'd be like, well. Live, live up to my Your name. honor, look at my last name. Yeah. What did you expect from yeah. me? If you ever have a therapist named like Michael, I have sex with my patients, <laughs> you should probably not. Anthony Weiner. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I take pictures of my Weiner and send them to people. Yeah. Anthony Weiner text. My name is... Uh, and for... Okay, so for decades, allegations from women, a uh, big surprise, were discounted because the clinician would claim the woman was crazy. This actually still happens, still happens today. Yipes. Right. It's very easy to make a case that your patient is delusional or obsessed with you, because that actually does happen sometimes. Yeah. You, we do have delusional patients, and we do have people who are obsessed with us. And we do have clients that would have reasons to lie about such a thing, right? But having said that, the allegations, false allegations, are actually extremely rare for a number of reasons. But uh, it seems as though there were probably lots of uh, things happening uh, in the early part of our profession and a few women would step forward, and of those women, they would be uh, blasted with accusations that they're crazy and this kind of stuff. But what decade did the profession start listening to these women and changing laws and ethical codes? What decade? 1950s? Close, 1970s. There's a landmark case in 75, Roy versus Hartogs, and the courts finally started recognizing this problem, and ethical codes were enacted in the same decade. So the 1970s was that time. Okay. So I'm going to give you 10 common scenarios just to give you a, a lay of the land in, in terms of uh, what these authors believe are common scenarios and how they look. What does it look like to have the, the therapist-client sexual relationship? And then again, this is by Pope and Bauhautsos. Sexual intimacy between therapists and patients. There are 10 different scenarios. First one is role trading. This is when the therapist becomes the patient and the therapist wants, and the therapist's wants and needs become the focus of the conversation. Can you see that mm-hmm. shifting into sexual uh, in nature between the two of them? Mm-hmm. Two, sex therapy. Uh, therapist fraudulently, fraudulently presents therapist-patient sexual intimacy as a valid treatment for sexual or other kinds of difficulties. Can you see this happening? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a uh, client is having intimacy issues or sexual dysfunction, and the therapist says, well... I'll help you with that. I'll help you with that. Number three, the as-if scenario. This is a situation in which the therapist treats positive transference as if it were not the result of the therapeutic situation. So this is when a client has a lot of positive, affectionate feelings for the therapist, and the therapist treats it as if they were in a bar (laughs) rather than in therapy. Uh, Number four, Svengali. Who's Svengali? Do you know Svengali? God, I've heard that name before. Anyway... 
This is a situation in which the therapist creates and exploits an exaggerated dependence on the part of the patient. So it's uh, the, the patient is very dependent on the therapist, and the therapist uh, not only uh, encourages that dependence but also exploits it. Number five, drugs. Therapist uses drugs or alcohol, and this is part of the seduction. Uh, who's Svengali? Svengali is a fictional character in George de Moraire's 1895 novel Trilby. Svengali is of Eastern European origin who seduces, dominates, and exploits Trilby, a young English girl, and makes her a famous singer. Interesting. Number six, rape. Therapist uses physical force, threats, and or intimidation. So, If you get raped by your therapist, like where the hell do you go from there? Exactly. Fuck. Exactly. God. Number seven, true love. True love. True marriage. Yeah, marriage. <laughs> Therapist uses rationalizations that attempt to discount the clinical and professional nature of the relationship with its attendant responsibilities. So in other words, the therapist feels like he or she falls in love with the client and they believe that that uh, is real and it uh, supersedes the ethical and legal situation. Number eight, it just got out of hand. This, this is a situation in which therapist fa- fails to treat the emotional closeness that develops in therapy with sufficient attention, care and respect. So they'll say afterwards, it, I don't know, things just got out of hand. It got out of control. Number nine, time out. This is a situation in which the therapist fails to acknowledge and take, take account of the fact that the therapeutic relationship does not cease to exist between scheduled sessions or outside the therapist's office. So in other words, the therapist uh, starts to socialize with the client outside of therapy and things get out of hand. Okay, number 10, the last one. Hold me. This is a scenario in which the therapist exploits patients' desire for non-erotic physical contact and possible confusion between erotic and non-erotic contact. This kind of sounds like the situation which we read. Yeah, but then it quickly escalated and was like, well, it's becoming erotic. Right. Erotic. Erotic. Non-erotic touching. Okay, so tougher bluffs. I have a number of them here for you. Uh, Only 9% of psychologists indicate that their training was adequate with respect to the subject of erotic countertransference or the erotic feelings a therapist has for their clients. So only 9% of psychologists indicated that they that their training was adequate regarding that. I'm going to say tough. You're right. It's tough. Only, yes. only 9% believe that their training was adequate. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that their training, most 91% of psychologists believe that their training is inadequate regarding erotic countertransference? Maybe people just don't talk about it enough. I mean, there's so many topics in any given field that are, you know vying for your attention yeah, and maybe they just think they need more regarding that other things. Yeah. Right. That's, that's good. That's probably true. Also our society is phobic around sex. (gasps) Wiener phobic. Wiener phobic. According to a 1995 study, sexual impropriety was the most common malpractice claim. What was the first part of that? Uh, According to a 1995 study, sexual impropriety was the most common malpractice claim. Malpractice for psychology. Hmm. Yeah. I think, it's, I think it's tough. It's bluff. Damn. It's second. 
Uh, the first, what? the first was treatment failure. I think. Oh yeah, well, yes. that can happen. Yeah. According to a '98 study, female therapists hug clients more often than males. Female therapists hug their clients more often than males. I think that's tough. It's bluff. <sighs> Men reported hugging their their clients more often. Isn't oh, that weird? That's shocking to me. Isn't that weird? I know. Yeah. Because in, in life, life, men don't. In life, hug. men hug less. And I feel like men are more stereotypically the aggressor in a sexual harassment case. So I feel like women would naturally feel more, for, feel more comfortable hugging in life and feel more comfortable like the patient wasn't thinking they were trying to come on to them. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It also could be a factor of people asking male therapists to hug them more often. So it's unclear as to why that would be. But anyway, according to a 98 study, 33% of male therapists and 40% of female therapists report having never hugged their clients. That's tough. Tough. You're right. I'm just going to go with one this whole time. Tougher blub. So about, so about a third of male and female therapists report having never hugged their clients which I have to say is pretty strange. I rarely hug my clients. I never initiate a hug with a client. I, but occasionally clients will ask to hug me. You know, May I hug you? Do they make it creepy? Um, that, there's various different ways people will initiate hugs. I'm going to hug you. Some people will just, will just hug. They'll just Because just, yeah. the way I sort of lead people out my door, we're in somewhat close proximity, and sometimes they'll just... They'll just They'll just grab me and hug me. Um, so uh, I find it actually strange that a third of therapists would say that they've never hugged their clients because, you know, that probably means that they've been asked for hugs and said that they don't, that they don't hug their clients. A hug is so funny, though, because people just vary on their huggability. I saw these two authors out, and one is like a pretty fancy author, and the other is a really fancy author, but I had like known her and stuff, and like, but she's kind of a, um, just not like a warm, fuzzy type person. And I like hugged the one that I knew better. And then I went to hug the other one. And I was like, don't hug her. But then I'm like, oh, it's happening. And then I couldn't tell if she would want to be hugged by me. And I'm from the South. I'm from Florida. So like when you come from Florida to Seattle, it's like this whole different set of rules. And it's like, I would like, how do you know if someone's a hugger or not? Because if someone's a hugger, it's no big deal. Uh-huh. But if someone is not into hugging, I don't want to hug them. But yeah. then when you be like, are you, uh, sometimes I'll be like, are you a hugger? You know, like uh-huh. as a kind of a joke, but like, and I'll have friends who just be like, like I have a friend who's just like, no, I'm not a hugger. And she's like, okay, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So in Florida, people hugged more. I just think in the South in general, I mean, Florida is kind of funny because parts of it can be very much like the South and then other parts like Miami is like a whole other world. If it's July and you're outside, don't hug me because I'm sweaty. Um, but I think that in general, it's more touchy. I don't know. I could see that. It's hard to generalize about cultures, even when you're in them, I yeah. find. I mean, you also know people in Florida from childhood. Yeah. So that, that could be a factor. Yeah. But I could absolutely see people in Seattle being... I mean, that's what people say is people in Seattle are colder than they yeah. are in other, <laughs> in other areas. Because we have a Scandinavian, Asian influence and not as much... Uh, influence from parts of the world that are more huggy. But I will say that uh, the people that I know are f- fairly 
uh, hug, hug prone. Hug and, prone. Yeah. And I, and I'm a hugger and I find that when you hug people, they appreciate it. And, but there are some people that I think are shy about or just don't like it and they don't hug. I personally think we're touch deprived. And, Me too. And, uh, any little bit we can get is a good thing for all of us. My boyfriend and I started taking waltzing lessons uh-huh. at Century Ballroom, and I really love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like. Do you dress in a fancy dress? No, I literally wear like black t-shirt, jeans, and Converse. Uh huh. And but you rotate partners, yeah. and when it first started, I just realized how rare it is to take a stranger's hand in my hand, and I think just in general personal space and we just don't touch as much in general, you know? And so it was kind of funny to be like, Oh my God, like this person literally has his arm kind of around me, you know? And their one hand is on the back of your, uh, what's this called? Your shoulder blade and uh-huh. the other hands in your hands, you know, it doesn't help that the teachers like take your partner in your arms, like in your arms is not what I want to think about with this strange person, but I think we are touch deprived. Yeah. So is it afterwards or during, do you feel like you're getting human contact in a way that you need in your life? Yeah, it just feels like really real and simple and fun and kind of this return back to just things that we just don't do as much anymore. I mean, I am like so addicted to social media and like I covered my phone earlier with my, we've talked about this. With my thing, so I didn't look at it because I have a problem, and that is so—I don't know—it's like so digital and cold because no one's even in this room with me and non-physical, you know. It's just yeah. all kind of in your mind, and so this is kind of nice and physical and social. And for me, I don't go to church, and so I kind of find ways to—you think about all these things that church provided, and there's that point at church where everyone kind of stands up and hugs or shakes hands, you know. So I think about all those little parts of church and how I can replace them in my life. And I think that taking dance lessons is really fun and kind of a return back to those like simpler social things that I really like and touching and just a lot of like base elements of human needs that we just don't get anymore. Yeah. And along those lines, maybe this client who is writing in this patron of the podcast that uh, it is you know, it exemplifies perhaps that issue in that sometimes the therapy office becomes a place for this. Uh, And if we had more functional human contact in our life, therapists and clients wouldn't resort to this Mm -hmm. and and the therapist wouldn't exploit it. Yeah. All right. Another tougher bluff. According to a 98 study, 10% of male therapists and 4% of female therapists report Having kissed a client, tougher bluff. My God, ah, oh, if, if it feels high, I feel like it would be more like one percent. Let me say bluff. It's unfortunately tough. Oh my God, ten percent. Ten percent of male therapists and four percent of female therapists. That is shockingly high. Yeah, that's shockingly high. Ten percent of male four percent of female therapists having kissed their clients. Okay, do you think it's? 10% of therapists that are just, I don't know, kissing once or is this ha- something that's happening over and over? Oh my God. I can't even imagine if my therapist tried to kiss me. Right? Ridiculous. Yeah. It's only reported having kissed once, but that doesn't mean that many of those people 
hadn't kissed several times and several clients. <laughs> According to a 98 study, 0% of male therapists and 0% of female therapists reporting, reported having frequently kissed clients. 0%. Yeah. So, so nobody is, frequently. Yeah. So, so, you know, virtually no therapist reported having frequently kissed their clients. God, I would like to think that that's tough. Is it bluff? It's bluff. Oh, God. 1% of male therapists and 0.3% of female therapists reported having frequently kissed their clients. Ah, what if you get one of the frequently kissing people? God. According to, I think, the same study, 3% of male counselors and 0% of, fe- of women counselors reported having fondled oral genital contact or intercourse. So fondling, oral genital contact... <laughs> I'm not mature enough for this question. Or intercourse with a client. 3% of men and 0% of women fondling oral genital and intercourse with a client. Tougher bluff. First of all, I could not handle the word fondling. It's so bad. <laughs> but oral you genital. know what that is. I know what it is. You uh, can picture it in your mind. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it comes from the word fond. I'm fond of you, so I fondle you. <laughs> Is that where it comes from? I don't know. <laughs> I'm yeah. It's like I'm I'm liking you right now. <laughs> I like you. Let me let me let me likey you. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> um. So I'm so mature. By the way, I'm in my 30s. It's so sad. Um. Very seriously. I believe that to be... It sounds tough. It's tough. Yes. I mean, boo. <laughs> like, my own personal ego is happy that I got that right. <laughs> Myself as a human, I'm sad that there are therapists fondling and oral generally touching. And intercourse, yeah. And intercoursing yeah. with clients. Yeah. Usually you discourse. Let's take it to intercourse. Inter, yeah. Ugh, why do we have the worst words for sex? 3% of male therapists and 0% of women, so basically only men and 3% of them reported. Now, this is the other thing they reported. So, there are several therapists that probably didn't admit it on the survey, you know? Yeah. According to 98 study, the more experience a counselor has, the less likely they are to have sexual contact with a client. The more experience they have, the less likely they will have reported that they have had sexual contact with a client, tougher bluff. Well, I mean, that's just more years that it could happen. Yeah. So I think that's bluff. You're right. Bluff. It's the same. Yeah. With experience, it does not have any effect. Okay, tougher bluff. Most are male therapists, the, the abusers. The fondlers. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say tough. It's tough. Some victims are children, tougher bluff. Uh, tough. Yep. Ugh. Oh, God. Clinicians uh. tend to be of similar age with their clients whom they have sex with. I'm going to go bluff on that one. Yep. Older. Killing bluff. it. You are. Um, I just saw the movie Spotlight. That reminds me of that yeah. amazing movie about yeah. child molestation. Do you think it deserved the Oscar? Um, what do you get the Oscar for? Best Picture. No, actually. Yeah, me knew. Me too. I, I mean, I th- it did get Best Director, the 
uh, Revenant guy got best director. I thought the story was interesting, but it wasn't like super captivating. Right. It was no Shawshank, as I always say. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly my thoughts. I thought it was a great movie. Glad I saw it. Maybe watch it again. But it wasn't Oscar material. Interesting and important, but not. it didn't like rock my soul. Yeah. It wasn't like I walked out going, that was an Oscar movie. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't even know it won Best Picture. Yeah. Don't agree. The Revenant, I walked out and was like, that's gonna. That's an Oscar movie right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Uh, efforts to re- rehabilitate clinicians who have had sex with clients. The efforts are often successful. Tougher bluff. Bluff. <laughs> you're, you're correct. <laughs> efforts to rehabilitate clinicians who have had sex with clients have shown not much success. And this is evidence of what do you think? Uh, evidence of people being assholes. Yeah. To me, it's evidence that people who have sex with their clients, that there's, there's some psychopathology involved, you know? Because if it was a mistake that they made and they could be rehabilitated, then that would be one thing. But if, if efforts to rehabilitate, to get them to stop doesn't work, then to me that indicates there's something particular particularly different about the therapists who have sex with their clients, right? Yeah. Tougher bluff. Most sex happens before termination, termination of the therapeutic relationship. Tougher bluff. I think that's tough. It's bluff. (gasps) Most sex happens after termination. But usually they will terminate the relationship so they can have sex. So it's like there's sexual tension building. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, we better better stop therapy. I better refer you so we can have sex. Mm Mm-hmm. The best predictor is, the, whether or not this will happen or not, is the client's prior sexual abuse history. Tough wow. Point. I think that's bluff. I think it'd be more on the therapist. Oh, my God. You're so smart. God, I'm so smart. Bluff. It has more to do with the therapist's history of prior boundary violations. Do you the, think people like specifically go into this field to be able to abuse people? I don't know, but... Some of the data seems to point that way. <laughs> or uh, they have a larger goal of manipulating people or being in control of people yeah. or something. Some people are so amazing, and then you're reminded of how many people can be like so terrible. Yeah, so unamazing. Uh, tougher bluff. About 45% of victims take formal action against the therapist. Tough or bluff? It seems high. I think bluff. You're right. It's only, what do you think? 15? 5%. Whoa. In one study, 84% of psychologists had knowledge of sexual misconduct by another professional that they knew, like a colleague or something. 84% of psychologists reported that they had knowledge of sexual misconduct by another professional. Tough or bluff? God. Tough. Tough. Ugh. 84%. So basically, almost everyone was like, yeah, I know someone who did. But so, they don't rat them out Well, they can lose their license. Okay. So 75% encourage the client to file a complaint. Tougher bluff. Hmm. I'm going to hope that's tough, but something in me feels like it's bluff. It's bluff. Damn it. What do you think it is? I think it's lower, like 30%. 35. Whoa. 10% had assisted a client in the complaint process. I think that's tough. Yep, you're right. I think you killed it on this one. I'm really doing good. I feel great. Yeah. What do I get? What do I win? A new car. A virtual pat on the back. Oh, I will hug you a on A virtual your... pat. No, I do not want your hug because you're just one of those creepy therapists. 
Just kidding. I will accept your hugs. Okay. Uh, ethical codes. So there are four main organizations for therapists, or you could say five perhaps, but, but I'm going to mention four. We have AAMFT, which is Marriage and Family Therapy. We have the Association for Counselors, and we have the Psychologist Association, and we have the Social Work Association. So those are the, main, the four main therapist associations. In the 1960s and 1970s, some in the profession argued that it could be therapeutic sometimes for clients to have sex with their therapist and therefore should not be forbidden. So this is on the buildup to sort of the sea change in our profession to start making it unethical and criminal. But let me ask you, is it always unethical for a therapist to have sex with a client, even a former client? So say, you know, 10 years later or a year later, you bump into them on Tinder. And is, it, is it still unethical to have sex with Well, you person? know what I think. I think that if you happen to meet your soulmate when you need therapy and your soulmate's a therapist, I say go for it. But I do think there has to be boundaries around it. I don't know. It's hard. It's bluff. In the ACA, the counselors, according to their ethical codes, it says you can have sex with a former client five years after last professional contact. So if you wait five years, yeah, uh, under some circumstances, you can have sex with that client. But you have to justify it and you have to document it, actually. You, <laughs> you have, have to videotape it. Well, you have to document in their file that you have probably received consultation or supervision and have determined uh, with some clinical judgment that it wouldn't harm them to have sex with them. That's the least sexy thing ever. Yeah. Uh, the APA for psychologists, it's two years. So psychologists okay. can have sex quicker. But again, I they thought st- you lost your license if you did it ever. Nope. It's, uh, you could still lose your license 10 years later, but you uh, might not is the thing. Okay. I think it should be one year. I think a year is enough. Well, for the counselors, it's five. For psychologists, it's two. For social workers, it's never. Social workers, their ethical code says never. never. Unless the social worker can demonstrate that the client is not being harmed. And for marriage and family therapists, again, same never. 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 But many think that these time limits are silly because how can we determine when it's okay for a therapist to have sex with their former client, right? It seems like is. Which which is right? Is it should it be never two years, five years? Mm-hmm. Which is, but on the other hand, some argue that sex can be fine in many situations, such as if the therapeutic relationship was brief, or if the therapeutic relationship was just like a consultation. I mean, there there are plenty of people that come to me, and we just meet for a few sessions to talk about their phobia of of needles or something Mm -hmm. and the relationship isn't very, you know, involved. And, uh, to some extent they're just hiring. It'd be like hiring someone to give you advice on finances or something. Mm -hmm. It, it, the relationship feels like that. So to some extent, the rigid rule doesn't account for situations that are like that. Having said that, how can you determine the difference there and the, the, the biggest thing for me is if you're, can't you just date normally, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. why do you need to 
you know, include your clients into your dating pool. Like there's a, there's many fish in the sea, right? You don't mm-hmm. have to, you don't have to fish in your therapy pond, so to speak. I don't know though. Sometimes when you meet someone, it's like, you don't feel that way. You feel like, well, this is the only person that I want to be with right now. Right. And love makes the world go round. So why should we stand in the way of that? Plus for, for some people, uh, it's just, uh, a, a matter of freedom. If two consenting mm-hmm. adults, uh, want to do something, why should, uh, society say that they can't, you know, we're, we're the land of the free, right? And we're supposed to be able to do what we want. So that's the argument on the other side is, and, and there are examples where a therapist has sex with a client and they're married for the rest of their life and they're very happy and they, and the, the former client doesn't feel exploited or anything. Mm-hmm. So there are examples where it actually works out. It's extremely rare <laughs> that that happens though. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm telling you. Okay. So, um, what sort of therapist does this sort of thing? Do you think a sexy therapist, sexy therapist? I don't know what someone who's poorly trained. Oh, someone who hasn't been trained. Well, someone who's having problems in their personal life. Mm. What sort of problems in their personal life do you think might contribute? Marital problems. Yes. What else? Intimacy problems. Yeah. What else? Substance abuse. Exactly. That's a big one. Really? Yeah. Substance abuse is a bitch. It is a bitch. And it can cause all sorts of issues. Yeah. And there's so many people who are like functional in the world that go home at night and like, or even start during the day, you know? Totally. Like. It's just the number of functional addicts is staggering. Oh, yeah. I would just take a guesstimate and say that 99% of addicts are functional, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, they they do fine at work. Um, they might have trouble in their personal life, but it's not terrible, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Also, therapists who have personality disorders, people who are antisocial, the psychopaths, <laughs> or their narcissistic personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. Psychopaths. These kinds of people are uh, at risk of having sex with their clients. Um, if the therapist is sexually compulsive mm. or if a therapist inappropriately self-discloses a lot. Oh, yeah. Has a lot of, particularly to meet their own needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, therapists who, who use clients to boost their self-esteem because they have low self-esteem. Mm. Uh, therapists who believe that love and sex in the therapeutic office is a curative thing. So these are people that believe that sex can be curative, and there are people like that. Uh, people who have needs to be understood by their clients. Need to, ne- to need, be under their clients. Need, yeah. to be, uh, Also th- what we call a rescue fantasy. People who have a, a rescue fantasy, that's, a, that's, a, that's an at-risk factor. What's we call that? it Well, in our I- industry, when people have rescue fantasies, it's when therapists have a fantasy that they can rescue their clients from, mm. from all the bad things of the world. And it's a uh, complex that leads to a lot of problems. And uh, as a supervisor and as a trainer, I spent a lot of time trying to break, because most people have rescue fantasies. Mm-hmm. I spent a good amount of time trying to break people of that fantasy, you, you know, saying, you're not, you're not the rescuer of this client. You can't. You don't have that power. Mm-hmm. You're their therapist, and you're going to meet with them for a, an hour a week. But there's there's going to be some clients that you will know that bad stuff is going to happen to them that week, 
and you're not going to be able to do anything about it and you shouldn't do anything about it because because mm-hmm. if you start doing things about it like trying to take over their life and actually trying to uh you know fight their battles for them then bad things happen including potentially leading to a breakdown of the boundary and maybe even having sex with their client also another common uh factor is when a therapist is personally having difficulty with terminating with a client. So mm-hmm. emotionally, they're very attached to their client. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to terminate. And so they want to shift the relationship into a friendship. And in their brain, they start making a lot of justifications for shifting to very to a friendship so they can hold on to that person. And then that can lead to sex sometimes. Also, another factor is pe- men who have masculinity issues. So they feel emasculated. And one way that they can get masculinity back into their life is to victimize a client because it makes them feel manly. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Or a female therapist who uses sex to help men or uses sex as a weapon, as they say, right? I always always love that that phrase. What's that Pat Benatar song? Love is a Battlefield. Love is a Battlefield. Oh, that's not really sex. Anyway. Sex is my weapon. Yeah. Um, Hit me with your best shot. No, uh, you know, so there's some women who will use sex to help men. Do you know about that syndrome? Uh, no, but like, can you imagine women being socialized to be very, uh, giving and to hand over themselves to, for the sake of the man. And, uh, if a woman has that syndrome, it could lead to them you know, it could be a factor in the, their decision to have sex with a male client. Mm-hmm. Another is therapist masochism or therapist self-hatred. Uh, their masochism is an issue. And do you know people who sabotage themselves at all? Mm. Like they, they seem to always make choices that bite them in the ass. I in mean, the me, but yeah. like, yeah, that's probably. <laughs> there are some people who have a, an issue perhaps because they were abused or neglected or, uh, hurt, abandoned. And they have this internalized construct of self punishment. And there's some therapists that have this and as a way of sabotaging their life and their career, they will have sex with their client and, uh, put their career at risk. Mm hmm. Okay, what's the typical profile of a therapist who has sex with a client? What do you, what's the typical... Like, 55-year-old male. Uh, good. Middle-aged man. What else? Smells like booze and shame. Uh, yep. Good. Uh, involved with alcohol or substance abuse. What else? Wow. Goatee. <laughs> uh, that's not in the data, but what else? <laughs> that's all I got. Uh, depressed. Okay. Depression can absolutely be a part of it. Yeah. Interpersonal difficulties like divorce or loneliness. And isolated in professionally isolated. So Mm. they're not seeking consultation or their own therapy. You know, therapists need to be in therapy and therapists need to be all the time, pretty much, or at least expensive periodically. And they also need to have consultants or supervisors. If, if you are starting to go down a road uh, with a client that will eventually lead to having sex with them, and you're in therapy or in consultation and you're honest with your people, they will detect it. Outsiders will often say, oh, sounds like something interesting is going on here. Tell me more. And, you know, well, I don't know. Da, da, da. Sounds, like, sounds like you're attracted to this person is, sexually. Mm-hmm. Is that happening? Huh. Maybe I am. 
you know that this could lead to bad things. How about we think about having you get your sexual needs outside of the therapy? How, how's your personal life going? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I'm going through a tough divorce right now and uh, haven't had sex in three years. And well, it kind of makes sense that you're starting to look to your clients since they're the only people you're socializing with. Are you socializing? No, I'm not. Okay, let's let's get you out there. You know, that kind of stuff. Therapists and supervisors and consultants can flag stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So you, you, as a therapist, you can't be isolated. And I can't stress this enough because so many therapists, particularly very independent-minded, dismissive-attached therapists, will say, I can do this by myself. I'm okay. Believe me, you can't. You can't do it on your own. Being a therapist is extremely stressful. It involves the self. And if you, don't, if you practice in isolation, uh, it opens the door to all sorts of bad things. My guess is, is if you're a therapist out there and you're listening to this podcast and you're a patron, you are, you're listening to this podcast partially because you don't want to be isolated anymore. I actually get emails along the lines. So good for you. All right. What are the bad things for the clients? What, what, what bad things do you think happen, happens to Oh, my God. Trust issues. Yep. Confusion. Yep. The worsening of a, whatever problem they came in for. Good. Originally. Other things. One study found that 64% suffered from PTSD afterwards. Wow. So they yeah, they were okay. traumatized. Other studies had a lower rate, but PTSD can be an issue. Yeah, dysfunction in their life, loss of trust, as you said, self-esteem, anger, guilt, relationship problems, a feeling of emptiness, and sexual dysfunction. Okay, bad things for therapists. What do you think? What, what's, what, this is the last section here. What, what are the bad things, the consequences for a therapist if they get in trouble for this? Oh, they lose their license? Yep, that's one. They... Or it could be suspended, suspended or revoked license, which means you can't practice anymore. Sounds like they're more likely to do it again. Uh, yes. Uh, feelings of guilt, shame. Yes. Increased substance abuse. Uh, what other disciplinary actions might happen to them? Besides oh, losing uh, their they license? could get sued. Yep, malpractice suit. Ooh. And you could be sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And malpractice insurance sometimes is a clause saying, if you get sued for having sex with your client, you're, you're on your own, pal. <laughs> I can't help you. Or, yeah, and so you could lose your house. Wow. You could lose everything. You could go into debt for a million dollars or something. So it's a, and your malpractice insurance wouldn't cover it. Yeah. So what else? Uh, bad Yelp review. <laughs> Two stars. Two stars. I'd give them one, but eh, you know. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, you could lose your job if you yeah. if you're working Sorry, at an agency. Um, you could have restrictions on your future practice. So sometimes a licensing board will say, "We won't take away your license, but you can no longer see." people of the opposite sex or <laughs> you can no longer uh, see uh, whatever. Sometimes there'll be restrictions yeah. on who you can see. Sometimes they will mandate continuing education. Sometimes they'll mandate supervision. You can only see clients under direct supervision for the next five years or something. Weird. Yeah. So then there has to be another therapist in there? Or the therapist needs to talk about their clients uh, outside of the client office. Mm-hmm. Um and 15 states, actually, there are criminal penalties for having sex with your clients. And those states are Minnesota, Wisconsin, Colorado, Connecticut, North Dakota, South Dakota, California, Florida, Georgia, Iowa, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Arizona, Ohio, and Texas, but not Washington State. Not Washington State. So, it's, it's, it, so there, there are two different issues when it comes to uh, discipline. There's your licensing board 
and there's also criminal charges. So those are two different uh, things that can happen to you. And then the third thing is is being sued. So there potentially you can you know licensing board, and you could actually go to prison, and then you could be sued for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you mentioned consequences for the therapist. Uh, shame and guilt you could you could you obviously will lose your reputation if it gets out and it often does if there is a formal complaint and you might not get any more referrals because no one wants to meet with you or maybe it'll increase your referrals from <laughs> if from, people do want to get from with certain you. people yeah all right well what's the final word on this paulette <sighs> don't do it don't do it because before you were like well, I, I, I believe in freedom. I want people to have... Well, the, I don't think people should be having sex with their children, like child patients. Yeah. That's terrible. No. But before, when I brought up the idea that therapists and clients couldn't date... or Well, could, I think there are situations under which it's fine, but it sounds like a lot of this is like predatory behavior. Yeah. One thing I haven't really emphasized enough is that therapists automatically have an innate power and privilege over their clients. Mm-hmm. So the thing I really want to emphasize is that the writer who wrote into us exemplifies a low-grade version of this. She detected this and ran away from it. She was very healthy in that way. But imagine if she had gone down that she, and she feels ashamed and guilty and all these bad things. Imagine if she had sex with him, what that could have felt like for her. How damaging that would be to you how exploited you would feel, how used. How could you trust another therapist again? Yeah, that's really where it's so damaging, where like the thing that you would go to to get over a sexual trauma would be a therapist. And if that safe space is the very space in which your sexual trauma took place, that's just really sad and horrible. How... I don't know, just how violated you would feel and how confused you would feel. You're, you're going to therapy. You really want your therapist to like you. You're, you're vulnerable. You have low self-esteem. And then, and then you start detecting, huh, my therapist really cares about me. Is very, this, this therapist is different. This therapist like, really, really cares about me. I really like this therapist. Wait. We're starting to, I'm starting to have sexual feelings for my therapist. I think I might be in love with my therapist. I think my therapist loves me back. Oh my God, you know, this feels so good to me. And almost all the time, the relationship ends at some point. Then the client is looking back and thinking, wait a second, my therapist used me. My therapist shouldn't have done that. How can I trust anyone ever again? And it becomes extremely distressing for people. And so I just want to stress my advice for the writer in, the patron who wrote in, that she absolutely should complain. Because one of the things that I think might be brought out in the data that I have presented is that people who do this tend to do it over and over again. And there might be something very wrong with this person. This might not be, this is in all likelihood not an isolated event. In fact, I'm just going to review the key moments here because it's, it's very methodical to some extent. So he starts off in the first session by saying she's a beautiful woman. Then in the second session, he calls her sensual. 
So we're all, it's all just words. So beautiful, then sensual. Then later on, he came and sat next to her. Yeah, and in another clear escalation. Yeah. Another session, he holds her hand. In another session, he rubs her arm. In another session, he starts rubbing her feet. In another session, he sits on the floor next to her and rubs the lower half of, his, of her legs. So each session, he's getting closer and closer to her vagina. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, then, he, then he hugs her. Then he cuddles with her. Then he kisses her on her legs. He's going around the bases. Yeah. Then he says he's always going to be there for her. Then he starts talking about her breast weight hip ratio and her face and her mouth and her eyes. So to me, it's if you just if I didn't know better, if I just heard this story, I would think it was a sexual aggressor grooming a victim. Mm-hmm. This is what you do to groom someone for vict- for you know to be a victim. The 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 key is that at a certain point she was like especially when he he was rubbing her arm and her feet she said something felt wrong to me but I was enjoying it and I felt uncomfortable and I she came into session kind of uh uh, at a distance, she was like, "Something is on, something going." Yeah. You know, uh, after they cuddled, she the next session she was just like, she had a vibe about her, like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's happening here." He noticed that she was uncomfortable and distancing herself, and that was when he kissed her on the legs. So he, if he was a normal person, one he would never even have done any of this stuff, but if he was even somewhat normal. <laughs> He would have detected her discomfort and would have been like, oh, well, I sh- as a therapist, I should probably stop even doing these things. You know, I'm, let's just get back to basics and let's just talk. But instead, in that very session in which he came in and was, you know, creating distance, he kissed her on the legs. That's when he really, he, he, in, he did the opposite of what someone should do. And he escalated the sexual victimization when she was uncomfortable. So my advice is to make absolutely make a complaint and potentially, depending on what state you live in, uh, criminal charges because he needs to be stopped. He probably has done this before and he's at risk of doing it again. And you deserve justice. You deserve to have the system work for you. I, I advise you to, but of course that's your choice and it would be a mess to go through. You'd have to write reports and be parts of hearings and it would be stressful. So I can't, you know, say that it's, it's going to be all wonderful, but you absolutely have the right to. And if you, if you want justice, then you have the right to complain. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, he probably needs to be stopped and he definitely needs to be at least uh, alerted that what he did was wrong. And it, like I said, uh, earlier, five percent or something of victims of this make a report, and the reason why this is is because in our society we don't we don't have a culture that supports victims like this. We have a misogynistic culture that tends to discount women's issues in general, and this is to some extent mostly a women's issue because they're most most of the victims are women, and most of the perpetrators are men. So 
we tend to, as with rape, we tend to discount that. Um, like I said, if you were mugged, like say your therapist punched you in the face or broke your arm on purpose or something, would you, would you question that you, sh- you know, would, you'd say like, yeah, I'm going to go to the cops. He punched me in the face <laughs> and he, t- he took my wallet. If your therapist did that, but somehow when it comes to sex, our society blames the victim and our system isn't necessarily set up to protect the victim. But know that the ethical codes are so clear that when you make a complaint and when it's credible, and it's not hard to be credible, you just have to tell your story because it sounds, it sounds very credible to me. Almost all the time, the complaint is honored. So at what point was he crossing the line? It's a good question. Because they, they didn't have sex. Uh, I would say at, definitely at the kissing of the legs. <laughs> yeah, definitely there. I think, that's, I think that's the clearest crossing of the line. He, she, she says, kissed me next to my knees. That is, there is, I mean, you could argue hugging, hugging, yeah. you could argue hugging a client was not crossing the line. Uh you could even possibly make an argument that cuddling with your client isn't crossing the line because I know actually some therapists that do that and some clients that enjoy that sort of thing. But I can't imagine anyone making a justification that kissing someone on the legs, a therapist kissing a client on the legs, I can't imagine any scenario in which someone would say, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. I can see that being a therapeutic. Yeah, I could, you know... Yeah. Getting you through the hard times. Yeah. You're sad? Let me kiss you on the I'm legs. I'm going to suck your knees right now. <laughs> that's how we're going to get through this. <laughs> so, uh, particularly because he didn't ask you to do it, uh, you felt uncomfortable. But, but really, the, it's, the, it's the whole scenario that would alert the licensing board. Because if, if he just kissed you on the leg, which, you know, that would be bad. But really, when you hear the whole story, it's clear it was heading in a direction. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that this guy, because it wasn't just one session where he lost control. It was like he was on a campaign with this client over several sessions. You can see the clear escalation. Right. And so there's a chance that he might not lose his license. There's a chance that he would uh, just be reprimanded and alerted that if anything like this happens again, he's in big trouble. They might also actually require him to put in his disclosure statement that if there's anything like this, that the patients have the right to complain and here's a phone number to call and this sort of thing. But anyway, so again, I am a privileged person because I don't, this hasn't happened to me and I'm not a woman and it's easy for me to say, just make a report, but know that you absolutely have the right to do that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Let me know what you think. You can email at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Let me know what you think. Do you have any stories? And if you're the patron that wrote in, let me know what you think about what I said. And uh, I will absolutely listen to that. Please take care of yourself and take care of other people because... You deserve it. 